You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. And this is a podcast pairing discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know, starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. (laughs) I said that with a straight face. This is Distilling Theology. Welcome to episode 64 of Distilling Theology. I'm your host, Blake Courtright, joined by my co-host, Justin Van Riper. Justin, how you doing today, buddy? You know, I am doing phenomenally. I am... Uh, happy to be here. It was a good Monday. I did not work today. It was awesome. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't be happier. It's uh, Weather's looking nice. Time off of work. And the awesome discussion to be had here. I'm, uh, you know, it's been a while, but I'm chuffed to bits. <laughs> there it is. And we are thrilled to have our special guest. Uh, he is a visiting professor of systematic theology at Westminster Seminary, California, a uh, longtime co-host of the popular White Horse Inn radio talk show that is also on the podcast stream. Uh, if you're not listening yet, you should be. Um, ordained Minister Emeritus in the United Reformed Churches, URCNA, and was the senior pastor at Christ Reformed Church in Anaheim, California from 1995 until he retired in December of 2020. Uh, our guest, of course, is Dr. Kim Riddlebarger, author of the book A Case for Amillennialism and several other books, but that's the one uh, we're kind of diving into tonight. Uh, Kim, thanks for being with us tonight on the show. Great to be on with you guys. Very good. Even if you are in the East Coast. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we were talking about the weather right before we started. And uh, when I was walking into work today, I was like, you know, springtime is a difficult time because one day it's 70 and sunny and a promise of what's to come. And the next day it's windy and rainy and a reminder that we're still kind of in the throes of of winter here in the Northeast. You could say we're 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 already in the summer and yet we're not we're not yet there. We're, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's good. Listen, Blake, as time goes on, it gets better and better and better. Are you sure about that? <laughs> you hope. <laughs> yeah, you guys. Have, it's amazing. And uh, Justin, what do we have going on uh, for three more days? Yeah, for three more days, uh, head over to distillingtheology.com/giveaway. Uh, you can win a case for amillennialism, uh, and you can also win one of these sweet. Covenant Theology is Distilled Theology hoodies, uh, you will objectively be more comfortable. Uh, it is a it is a fact uh, in this hoodie. Um, so head on over there, uh, join while you can. It's running now through Friday the 9th, and then on Tuesday the 13th, we will announce the winner of said giveaway. Uh, so yeah, distillingtheology.com slash giveaway. Head over there now, and um, yeah, it'll be awesome. It's exciting. It's exciting. And tonight, I'm excited. Uh, one of the most fun things about setting up these interviews has been emailing pastors and theologians and authors and then asking the question, like, what do you, what do you like to drink? Do you like to drink? Do you want to? So, um, Kim, you'd messaged back about uh, more of a beer guy, but that you do have some some Red Breast 12 uh, Irish whiskey handy. Um, out of curiosity, just for you, what, what do you like about this particular uh, spirit? I have not had much of it to be honest. It's a gift Ooh. for uh, retirement. Ooh. So if I do drink distilled spirits, which isn't terribly often, and I like Balvenie Scotch, single Oh, yes. Balvenie is my jam. 
so this is this is new to me. And Ooh. you guys realize it's dinner time here. Oh yeah. I usually don't pound down Irish whiskey during dinner. So <laughs> just a wee dram. Just a wee dram. Yeah, this uh I'm glad you chose it because I've I've had it before, but it's been a while. It's bottled yes. at forty percent alcohol by volume. It's aged for twelve years. It's a single pot still, meaning it's made from both malted and unmalted barley with no other grains. Uh, it's not a blend of different grains. Um, in order to have this designation, it must be made in Ireland. In this case, it's uh, equal parts malted and unmalted barley. It's triple distilled at the Middleton Distillery using their copper pot stills. And they also produce Jameson and Tillamore Dew. So a lot of Irish whiskeys coming out of here. Yes. Uh, and on their website, Tell, they Tillamore say... Dew's another good one. Oh, yeah. We'll get there. We'll get there. They say matured in a combination of bourbon-seasoned American oak barrels and Oloroso sherry-seasoned Spanish oak butts. The distinctive redbreast sherry style is a joy to behold in each and every bottle. So we'll do our little uh, n- nosing and tasting and then uh, I'm excited to get into our topic. Yeah. Woo. I get that sherry influence. That's fruity. Yeah. yeah. It's a little bit nutty. Yeah. Dried oh, yeah. peels, ginger. So many notes. So little time. <laughs> I'm a little bit stuffed up from this weekend, so I'm not quite... My, my sense of smell is not as attuned as it should be, but, uh, you know? I can assure you there's a touch of melon. There is oh. some linseed, perhaps. <laughs> I think you might be making things up, but on that note, uh, we'll take a sip here and get into it. Mm. It's a little bit spicy, but it's spicy. got a good body, yeah. There's more of the nuts and the citrus. Yeah, that's Ooh, very yeah. sweet and pleasant. Yeah, yeah it's, a little marzipan. Still like my Balvini a little better, but oh yes, <laughs> yes, but, yeah. It's my I jam would agree right with that. there. I'd agree. Wait, <laughs> which uh, expression do you like? The twelve year or the yeah. fourteen year? That's the best thing about being a pastor is people gift you scotch. <laughs> so it doesn't matter to me as long as I don't mm-hmm. pay for it. Well, amen. Amen. Absolutely. That's expensive. It really is it expensive. Is. Yes. It's it good. Is. Very good. It's a good gift. What I'm what I'm hearing from this is get uh scotch as a gift for your pastor. Assuming you're not in a, a teetotaling denomination. Yeah. Definitely get it for my pastor because he he doesn't drink and then he'll give it to me. <laughs> Justin, I don't think that's the okay. <laughs> my pastor is also my dad, so it's yeah, a win win. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, my pastor's from uh, from Ireland, so we actually had an Irish whiskey when I was over at his house a couple of months ago, uh, which was mm. which was a lot of fun naturally, to hear some of his naturally. stories. Anyhow, on that note, yeah. Justin, you want to open us with a prayer from the Valley of Vision, and then absolutely, we'll I do. Jump in, absolutely, you guys. If you have the Valley of Vision at home, I know many of you do. Uh, turn to page forty-eight. Uh, we are going to be, of course, talking, reading, praying about the Second Coming. Hmm. Page 48 of the Valley Vision. O Son of God and Son of Man, Thou wast incarnate, didst suffer, rise, ascend for my sake. Thy departure was not a token of separation, but a pledge of return. Thy word, promises, sacraments, show thy death until thou come again. That day is no horror for me, for thy death has redeemed me, thy spirit fills me, thy love animates me, and thy word governs me. I have trusted thee, and thou hast not betrayed my trust. Waited for thee, and not waited in vain. 
Thou wilt come to raise my body from the dust and reunite it to my soul by a wonderful work of infinite power and love greater than that which bounds the ocean's waters, ebbs and flows the tides, keeps the stars in their courses, and gives life to all creatures. This corruptible shall put on incorruption, this mortal immortality, this natural body a spiritual body, this dishonored body a glorious body, this weak body a body of power. I triumph now in thy promises as I shall do in their performance. For the head cannot live if the members are dead. Beyond the grave is resurrection, judgment, acquittal, dominion. Every event and circumstance of my life will be dealt with. The sins of my youth, my secret sins. The sins of abusing thee, of disobeying thy word. The sins of neglecting ministers' admonitions. And the sins of violating my conscience. All will be judged. And after judgment, peace and rest life and service, employment and enjoyment for thine elect. O God, keep me in this faith and ever looking for Christ's return. Amen. 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 Wow. Good stuff. Love it. Love it. So good. Thank you, Justin. So as we jump in, uh, we've been going through eschatology. We talked uh, last week about premillennialism, which was a little bit funny because Justin and I both came from a uh, dispensationally influenced premillennial view. So I think mm-hmm. we, we, we tend to be a little bit, uh, we can be a little harsh on some of those aspects. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I was listening back. I said, Oh, we're going to describe dispensational premillennialism, but then you know what it is. It's, it's when I get to that stuff about reinstituting sacrifices when Christ was like, that's the stuff that just gets me riled yeah. up, but the rest mm-hmm. of it I can, I can mm-hmm. tolerate, but that stuff just yeah. gets me. But yeah, that said, Dr. Ritterbark, could you give us a 10,000 foot view? What is amillennialism? Uh, where does it fit within systematic theology as a, you know, as this doctrinal heading? Okay. Um, I was raised in the same background you guys apparently were, so I'm real sympathetic to those issues. Um, I Mm -hmm. still, in many ways, feel more comfortable with my old evangelical dispensational uh, friends and family than I do with some of the Dutch when you get into the, you know, post-World War II immigrants, and they have a whole different culture. Um, The the mainstream evangelicals are, you know, folks I was raised with. So um, back to your question, the amillennial view is simply that the millennium is a present reality. Uh, It's the period of time between Christ's uh, resurrection and ascension, that whole complex of events associated with Christ's uh, enthronement, the Father's right hand where he takes his place as king and and rules above all principalities and powers and thrones and so on, until his return at the end of the age. And when he returns at the end of the age, it's to raise the dead and then judge the world and then recreate the heavens and the earth to make it the everlasting home of righteousness. So most things that premillenarians push off into the future and that Christ will come back, rapture off the, the Gentiles, then return to dealing with national Israel, set up a uh, Davidic kingdom on the earth, rule for a thousand years. There's an apostasy at the end of the thousand years, Satan's let out, the nations revolt against Jesus while he's been ruling and reigning for a thousand years. And then there's a final judgment. And so, to put it simply, all millenarianism just collapses all of that between the first and second coming, and all of the things our dispensational friends say are future, we would say are present realities. So, if you take that long timeline and scooch it all together, everything overlaps. That's all millennialism. Huh. So the the big complex chart kind of becomes one. Yeah, it's our chart's way. simpler. Our chart's <laughs> a lot simpler. Jesus is coming back. Amen. <laughs> soon, soon, perhaps. 
when you alluded to this a little bit, um, but what's kind of your story with Amalek? How did, how did you go from this evangelical dispensational premillennialism mm-hmm. to writing a whole book about amillennialism yeah, and, yeah. and pastoring a church with, with this kind of eschatology? I was raised in a Christian bookstore industry. I don't know. You guys on the East Coast may not know Knott's Berry Farm, but it's a big amusement mm-hmm. park here, uh, kind of a friendly rival to Disneyland. They're just a couple miles apart. So we had a Christian bookstore at Knott's Berry Farm. And I grew up selling all the dispensational stuff. The first serious book of theology I read was Hal Lindsey's Like Great Planet Earth. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that's the first book I picked on my own <laughs> to read as a, as a kind of a teenage Christian. Um, so I was the kind of kid that, that was in a, a World War II and Civil War history. So I liked all the tanks and the airplanes and built every Revell model they had, every monogram model. And so here the dispensation was talking about the end times using the charts and using the airplanes and models that I was building. Huh. So there was a pull into that whole thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the, the root awakening came when, because we were at Knott's Berry Farm, our merchandise was delivered to Knott's. It couldn't be delivered to our store. So the guy had to haul our books in every day from their warehouse. He used to give me all kinds of stuff about the stuff we were selling. And he'd walk over to the book rack and, why are you selling this? Why are you selling that? Why are you selling? Well, I decided I'd just launch on him. I'd had enough. And within an hour, I was so pinned to the mat with passages I had never even thought about. It was <laughs> terrifying. Uh, here, here's a guy that I you know, was kind of ready to belittle and pick on, and he just flipped me and turned me, and I was in one, two, three, out. And that, that's when it began. I began to think about, wait a minute, what about evil in the millennial age? That was really a problem. And how do people... Mm get through the second coming still in natural bodies to procreate when Jesus said that doesn't happen. Mm. Um, what about Ephesians 2? You really hammered me on that, that the whole purpose of Christ's coming is to make the two peoples one, not the one people two. So that got me started. By the time I went to seminary uh, at Westminster, I had had a year at what's now Trinity Law School in Santa Ana, but it was the Simon Greenleaf School of Law, John, or- John Warwick Montgomery, Walter Martin, the, the old Bible answer man, the real Bible answer man. <laughs> and... Um, this Lutheran guy I'd never met before named Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. And Rod is one of these teachers that when you have him for a professor, he absolutely changes your life um, because he's so passionate about justification. So mm-hmm. while I'm working through justification, getting imputed righteousness just drilled into me, um, it, it began to be really clear that uh, I got to rethink this. And when I graduated, uh, Dr. Montgomery, Dr. Rosenblatt said, you know, you really, I think I'll go to seminary. And if you go to seminary and, Think about doing postgraduate work. I mean, there's a job here for you. So after I picked myself up off the floor, I, I told both of them, well, I'll just go to Talbot because it's right up the street from my house. And they both said, if you go to Talbot, the deal's off. Um, <laughs> Westminster is opening a campus in Escondido. You commute down there and you go there. So Lutheran sent me to Westminster. <laughs> so I went to Westminster and had Dennis Johnson bless his heart and Bob Strimple bless his heart and Bob Godfrey bless his heart put up with all my whining and complaining and, you know, trying to defend myself. And after three years, I was, it was just over. So <laughs> the five points went first, easy. Yeah. That was pretty simple. Sure. Uh, of theology, I wasn't really sure about, so I played with, you know, Vlad's historic post mill for a while. And the same problems kept coming up, even the millennial kingdom, you know, how do people get to the judgment? I thought about post millennialism for a while, and I, I have, you know, issues with that too. So I finally came on mill. Um, right before I graduated, and the last thing to go uh, several years after I graduated was uh, infant baptism. That was the hardest for me. 
And once my once my eschatology became covenantal, then it got to be infant baptism which made perfect sense in light of your classic reform covenant theology. So that was a that was a five year progression. Ooh. Wow. Five years. And I fought every every step of the way. <laughs> well, what about this verse? What about that verse? What about this? So a case for all Williamson kind of comes out of the interest in writing that book comes out of my own conversion. But I also wanted to write a book that I could give to somebody who was a dispensationalist who wouldn't be offended by the tone of it. Mm. They kind of get that, that this is mm-hmm. a pretty serious critique, but it's not mean. And so that, that's the genius of the book. Um, a lot of got left in the cutting floor. So that became mm. a man of sin, the second book. Yeah. So that's how, that's how I got started. Been yeah. in Francis since uh, 03. And uh, Baker asked me to include some more material in 13. So and I, I conned Dr. Horton in writing the forward for it. <laughs> that's a good that's a good move. Mm-hmm. Justin, if I write a book, you have to write the forward as my co-host mm. here on the show. Deal. That's how that works. Deal. Vice versa. Yeah. I don't know why. why no, that's... Uh, Thank you. That's helpful to get that context in. And for our listening audience, yes. which which tends to be a mix of people, we've had uh, just for a little bit of background, one of our listeners joined our group uh, a year ago on Facebook because he was kind of Pentecostal background, but we were a bunch of Christians who would enjoy some alcohol and his background that really wasn't happening. So yeah. he said, oh, I'll jump in here. And what's this Calvinism thing you guys are talking about? And what's this? And now he's posting you know, R.C. Sproul books and Herman Bavinck books, and he's he's sailed ship over to, uh, you know, the the reformed streams of theology a year later, which has been amazing. But we, we yeah. do have that varied audience. So it's, yeah. um, as much as we can, we do want to have that reach. So that's really amazing. And, and I noticed that in, in um, when I was exploring this topic, reading through your book, um, the tone is very approachable and, uh, not this uh, beating your chest and screaming at why are you why are you believing this? Um, even though sometimes well, uh, I'm sure it's tempting. <laughs> it's tempting, and the 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 thing you have to do is is separate the prophecy pundits, mm. the prognosticators. I, it's not an accident that Hal Lindsey went from trying to write theology books to doing a program. Guys, what ninety nine now or something must be 100, 110. I'd be so alive, <laughs> but his program over the years went from being a discussion of biblical passages to him essentially looking like he was in a newsroom trying mm. current events to scripture. And once you start doing that, you're going to make all kinds of wild predictions and do all kinds of goofy stuff. And guys yeah. who are in the, in the punditry world are not serious dispensationalists. Yeah. And serious serious mm. dispensationalists look at them like I look at them. Like, just go away. Yeah. <laughs> Hal Lindsey is 91. I, born, 91. In, wow. born in 1929. Yeah, wow, he's old. Impressive. Impressive. Yeah, yeah. Just gotta keep setting dates, you know. <laughs> well, I, ma- I imagine the way you said that's like how um, yes. Dr. MacArthur and others in that in that camp would uh, yeah. respond to all that nonsense. Yeah. Well, I mean, they do. And his his takes on other things are very clear about that. Yeah, and right. So, what is you know in in the historic context, we're talking about church history here a little. A few weeks ago, we actually talked about dispensationalism, and it's pretty novel roots and then these very yes. specific forms of premillennialism that came out of it but could you give us a, a brief like church history where where does amillennialism fit in yeah. in church history because obviously the the dispensational premillennialist view is pretty novel but there's a mm-hmm. historic premill and some of these other things right. so so how does the the amillennarian uh okay. position fit in 
A former classmate of mine, Charles Hill, uh, who's now at RTS, wrote a great book called Ratum Calorum, Reign of Heaven. And he makes a pretty compelling case. The last thing I held on to, we were classmates and I was going through this, but I never had had the chance to even ask him. We should go back to those days and, and revisit that. But uh, he makes a really compelling case that in the apostolic church, post-apostolic church, first three century period, there's a significant discussion between those who believe that there would be a millennial reign of Christ on the earth after Christ's return. And there's a, there's a train of thought that would argue that, which is a, the best argument historic premillenarians have going for them. Mm-hmm. And then he makes a case that there's an equally strong and then maybe stronger strain that says, no, the first resurrection occurs at conversion or death, which is the classic all mill position. So those two have been present in the church you know, for a long, long time. And I, th- I think he'll make a pretty compelling case that, that you premillenarians just can't claim the apostolic world anymore. And he's mm. really kind of, kind of mitigated that there was some wide range of opinion even early on. Uh, the modern categories we use, pre-mill, post-mill, and all-mill, are, are recent. Um, mm. mm-hmm. It used to be that either you were a, a killiest or a non-killiest, you were a millenarian or a non-millenarian. So um, the modern terms we use are kind of holdovers. I think you make a good case that all-millennialism has been around since the time of the fathers. It's never been called that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were a non you were a non-millenarian. You were not Achilleist. And if you were Achilleist and you were premillennial, you went to the Old Testament for Davidic types and shadows as applying to the church. And you'd get things like, for example, when a king is coronated, appeals to uh, David's coronation, Solomon's coronation, you know, those kinds of things to to draw from the Old Testament to the civil <laughs> kingdom, uh, those kinds of images. So that's just been around. Um Abraham Kuyper supposedly coined the term amillenarianism, but it's simply non-killiism. Post-millenarianism has the, the attachment to secular progress is pretty recent. Um, mm-hmm. And it, I would argue, goes back to the industrial age and so on, where, where we're for the first time in world history thinking things could really get better. Uh, yeah. So modern evangelical post-millennialism kind of comes out of that. What mm-hmm. is historic about the post-millennial tradition is the expectation there might be a latter-day glory for the church. Mm. And, and that's a tech, structurally biblically, that's just kind of a tweaking of amillennialism. Mm-hmm. The tie of that to uh, economic, cultural, and religious progress is pretty new and tied, I think, to the whole progression of history that you see yes. post-enlightenment. So I don't think it's an accident that you know during the Reagan presidency, there was a lot of interest, renewed interest from Greg Bonson and others in post-millennialism. And now after a Trump presidency, there's kind of renewed interest in post-millennialism again. And it won't last long. It never does because you know, the world is, is not a happy place all the time. So um, yeah, I that, often try to, I often have to make a distinction between those two things because uh, there's what I like to call historic post-millennialism that would be essentially optimistic amillennialism. Um and then the modern sort of reconstructionist theonomic right. post-millennialism, which is a separate thing entirely. The exactly. only thing that they really share is uh, an optimistic view of the future. Uh, however, even what the nature of that optimism contains is different. Uh, the The historic post-millennial is not looking for, uh, like you said, the, the sort of cultural uh, reformation in the same way that um, that that someone who's optimistically a millennial would would. Yeah. Well, I kind of quibble about the terms optimism and pessimism. And I, and sure. I think it's a, it's a Greg Bonson uh, coinage. 
Mm-hmm. And it, as an amillennialian, it, it's one of those things we're always up against. When you say you're amillennial, oh, you're pessimist. Well, I'm really optimistic about the kingdom of God. I'm really <laughs> pessimistic about the city of man. Mm-hmm. So I don't. I I just kind of challenge people to rethink the ethos thing, um, mm-hmm. because you know postmillenarians are going to expect a great apostasy before Christ returns, as are all millenarians. Uh, structurally, it's the same. So I, I, I think if you're holding to the old evangelical postmillennialism, as opposed to saying I'm optimistic all mill, say I'm expecting something to happen before the time of the end, and it usually is a, the eschatological glory of the church. The church is going to experience a glorious thing at the end. I think that drop the ethos language. You know, that's, that's my advice to folks. I've written on that because it, 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 for example, it's very strong managed for the Amil guy because you know I'm really optimistic about world missions, the gospel going to the ends of the earth, and so on. Mm-hmm. That's one of the signs of Christ's return. But I am really uh, dubious about progress in the city of man culturally and economically, and so on, mm-hmm. um, because I, I read the New Testament language of signs. Jesus is giving us signs, and none of them say it's going to get better. They all say it's going to be like it was in the days of, of Moses or days of Moses, days of Noah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, along with the fact that the kingdom is going to be taken by the church, the ends of the earth. So, um, yeah. Mm. I was going to, we'll jump into some two kingdom stuff later. Cause that I've heard you mention the, the city of man, city of God, a second there, which actually my pastor this past Sunday preaching, uh, Isaiah 13 and the prophecy against Babylon, um, brings up this, this imagery and traces it into the new Testament of Babylon being representative of, of Augustine's, you know, city of man, this, this yeah. kingdom of the world, but we'll get there. Uh, but I was curious one last, uh, before we jump into Matthew, um, I hear the terms thrown around a lot, futurist, idealist, historicist, preterist, partial preterist. Um, I feel like I'm missing one, but I'm not sure what are those in reference to and, and you know, what's a, a brief overview of what they are and how, how are they related to amillennialism? The, the terms generally are trying to cope with the fact that something significant happened in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed mm-hmm. and the Jews were dispersed to the ends of the earth. And then I take the view that the book of Revelation is post 70. I don't mm-hmm. know if I go as late as mid 90s, and that's probably an outlier, but um, I do take the view that the book of Revelation is a God given commentary on all the loose ends left over from Christ fulfilling the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And so if you read uh, the book of Revelation and the events of AD 70, as being completed by AD 70, you're preterist. Okay, those things have been fulfilled. Within the preterist school, there, there's a heretical form of preterism, which is full preterism that holds mm-hmm. that, you know, Christ came in AD 70, so the rest of history is just the population of heaven and hell, and there's no bodily return of Christ, no bodily resurrection, and that view is outside the bounds and it's considered unorthodox and heresy. Partial preterism is just the view that a lot of stuff significant happened before AD 70 or at AD 70. So what's left in eschatology is the second coming of Christ. Then you have those who read the book of Revelation as a map of church history called, called um, historicists. So they'll go through the book of Revelation, they'll try and figure out who was Napoleon. Napoleon's one of the trumpet judgments, the bowl of judgments, no, Peter the Great. Um, you, know, you, you have attempts to tie that to the course of church history. And some of that's pretty creative. And then you have the idealist position, and, and again, it's one of those things about labels. I, I, the idealist position is a little on the platonic side. We're talking about you know, uh, eternal forms of things manifesting into material things, which makes me a little nervous. Yeah. So 
Uh, I think it's you know, an eschatological realism, a, a present millennialism is, you know, Greg Beale struggles with this too. The, the nomenclature that people use really isn't accurately describe anybody's view. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of frustrating. Uh, I think there's something to each of those schools of thought in the book of Revelation. I mean, John's pretty mm -hmm. clear that I'm writing this stuff to you guys of the seven churches who are on the mail route in Asia Minor in the first century. Mm -hmm. So there's something about that letter that's it's a letter to the churches. It mm -hmm. also is prophetic in some portions, and it's structured apocalyptic. It doesn't really fit with the preterist, uh, idealist, mm -hmm. historicist, inter you know, labels just don't yeah. really fit it. So. Um, we're in need of new labels, and, and I blame amillenarians for that because we've been silent on so many things, and hmm. um, we always lose out to the prophecy pundit guys because our stuff isn't as interesting. I, I can't, <laughs> I, I can't, you know, compare uh, what happened, say, on January sixth to any Bible verse, but all the prophecy pundits can. Hmm. I can't tie COVID <laughs> to one of the great plagues. But all the prophecy pundits can and do, <laughs> yeah. um, you know. So we're going to lose in the end anyway. So <laughs> that's we amazing. Can't keep up with that. That's stuff. amazing. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. I, I take the Book of Revelation as a book. You know, if it's generally largely apocalyptic, it has a scene in the foreground, and that's the Roman Empire's persecution of, of Christians living then and there. Mm -hmm. But the persecution of the of the Christians by the Roman Empire late last half of the first century epitomizes what's going to happen to christians all the way until christ comes back hmm. so rome then and nero become kind of typological of the kinds of things that christians are going to face until christ comes back and i i use uh, derfier as a great example of an antichrist figure um he puts himself in the place of christ he has a false religion and I, you know, can get the occult nonsense that's like History channels, the ancient aliens, that's way out in the weeds. But, there, but there's, a, there's a sense in which, you know, Nazi Germany has a religious bent to it, like, oh, like, yeah. like Marxist materialism does, mm -hmm. that's secularizing. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Hitler's greatest, uh, in addition to the persecution of the Jews, Hitler's personal prisoner, Martin Eimler, was a reformed pastor. Hmm. Um, so, you know, you, you've got Hitler using the swastika, and there's that famous scene in one of the old World at War uh, biopics. And it, uh, it's well done. It's done in the 70s where all the principals are still living. Mm. And they're talking about the rise of Nazi Germany. Here come all the little German school children in around a Christmas tree with a swastika on top. And they're singing in perfect pitch, marching in perfect cadence, and they're singing, Hitler is our savior, Hitler is our lord. So people say to me, what's the Antichrist? That, that's what mm. Antichrist is right there. So the book of Revelation has a historic sense about it. It is about the Roman Empire. It is about Nero. But it always is a present application. Hmm. That the stuff Rome did to Christians is going to continue to happen until Christ comes back. Not everywhere at once, but at some place on the earth, multiple places on the earth, there'll be horrific persecution, as we see tonight. And yet at the same time, the gospel's spreading and culture's being transformed because believers are acting as salt and light in wherever they are. So there's going to be this you know, ebb and flow kind of thing. Why Jesus called the last days bird pains. Hmm. I don't know if you guys are dads, but you know if you've, you've been in the labor delivery room, you know you see you see is this contraction it? Oh, it's, <laughs> it, it's over. Oh, that one, this one isn't it. There's another one coming. Is this it? No, now it's peacefully in for a while. <laughs> so Jesus uses that intentionally because it describes a kind of alternating ebb and flow course of history. And hmm. if we want to know what we're going to face, look what the first century Christians faced. 
thankfully in the province of God, we've not faced that. And may not. Yeah. And we may face it tomorrow. So, mm. so I don't know if the current labels work all that well. No, I think that's a good, so yeah, to our, fair. to our listeners, uh, head over to the Facebook group and drop, drop some, some new terms, drop some new, <laughs> uh, some new ideas. We, we got a few people there, some, some folks at RTS, some folks at Westminster, some folks at uh, Dallas. So you guys, cause that's not my, that's not my department. That's above my pay grade. I, I just read, uh, the books and recommend them. I, I'm not, uh, for those of you who love Cornelius Vantil, he was great at neologism. So mm. start at it. There you go. Follow in, follow in. Uh, Justin, do you have any other thoughts or questions before we, I, I wanted to get into, to, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited to get into Matthew 24 and Revelation yeah. 20 and yeah. Well, so, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've had this, this was my objection to amillennialism. This is something I've heard from many, many people. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, you go to Matthew, obviously Matthew 24, 34, right? Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. And they say to me, well, what are you, you know, you're, you're, you're spiritualizing it. You're this, you're that. Um, so I guess, I mean, obviously Matthew 24 is a much bigger, bigger picture right, there. And, right. and we alluded to it a little bit, but, you know, give us, uh, okay. from this, om- I, I can om- help, I think. Yeah. 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 I, I think you have to, to look at Christ's kingly and prophetic offices when you're going through passages like this. So we have Christ fulfilling the Davidic kingship. Currently, while he's saying this, He's also speaking as God's final prophet. So a lot of what Jesus mm. says regarding future things is given in prophetic idioms. All that means is he's talking very much like an Old Testament prophet. And so Old Testament prophets look at Micah and, and um, Hosea and then Zechariah, where they're, they're talking about things that are going on imminently then, threats to either the northern kingdom or to Judah. Either the Assyrians are right over the border, they're coming, or the... Uh, Babylonians are about to, you know, lay waste to the whole of of uh, what's left of Judah. So, in the midst of the prophets spoke about the things the people had done wrong that had provoked covenant judgment mm. and the promise of great restoration at the end of the age. So, the mix imminent future is common in prophetic idiom. So, when Jesus starts to speak in Matthew twenty four, he's speaking very much like an Old Testament prophet. He's describing the most cataclysmic thing ever to happen to the people of God, which is the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. Mm. No question. He's talking about the future and generation within a generation disaster to come upon national Israel. And it leads to the diaspora, the, the scattering of the people of God at the ends of the earth. So you go back to redemptive history and think, when did that happen? Hmm. Adam was cast out of Eden. Israel was cast out of the promised land. So it's a recapitulation of things in the Old Testament. When the temple goes, you better hope it's not on the Sabbath. You better hope your wife isn't pregnant because mm-hmm. you better hope the weather's good because when you start to see Rome surrounded by armies, you know, the age of the, the Gentiles, man, it's time to get out of Dodge. So <laughs> in the midst of these warnings of something that's going to happen, you know, within a generation, so there's your language about the, this won't pass away until this is fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Jesus launches it into something future. It's exactly what the Old Testament prophets do. Well, they'll talk about, you know, now don't despair because the glorious restoration is coming. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, 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 the tension we face is, well, what's that glorious restoration? Is it going to be a golden age on the earth, as, you know, some post-millenarians say? Or is it talking about the uh, Messianic kingdom and how 
the nations of the earth are all of a sudden going to be evangelized and brought to Israel's God at the holy city, which is now Mount Zion. And so you have Jesus himself doing the things a lot of prophecy experts say you can't do, and that's spiritualizing <laughs> texts. And he's doing it as an Old Testament prophet. Mm. And he's the only one who can do it. Mm. So when I get the argument about, well, you're just, you, know, you made the Bible in a wax nose, you're just spiritualizing this, you're spiritualizing that. That is true if I don't have Jesus doing it, uh, if I don't appeal to him doing it. Mm-hmm. So if I can appeal to something where Jesus takes an Old Testament prophecy and then launches it, or one of the apostles does that, then I have permission to follow along. But I can't do it in other texts where it's not done. So it takes a lot mm-hmm. of time, a lot of years of wrestling through this stuff to kind of figure out where I can and where I can't. And the answer is simple. You follow um, Christ. When Christ is hinting at cosmic signs, you know, we can't limit that to 70. There may have been, there was an earthquake and a, a sky turned dark when Jesus died. But did that occur across the world? No, but not that we know of. The signs spoken of all of a sudden are cosmic. It's universal. Uh, every eye shall see. So we have the Olivet Discourse followed by a fair bit of apostolic interpretation of what Jesus had said. In those cases, they add additional information where it's pretty clear that you know, this great restoration is, is, is a resurrection from the dead um, in eternal life. We're, we're in the New Testament taught not to see the prophecies, the prophecies of restoration temporally. You know, more land, more figs, more you know, children. None of the Canaanites are going to be this like you know the Old Testament. But the promises after the resurrection are so beyond our wildest expectation that we really can't grasp them. So the Bible uses you know, long life. Gonna have a pet tiger in the millennial kingdom. That was my great hope as a dispensationalist. <laughs> was like, I grew up and have a pet tiger. Um, you know, all that stuff is just symbolic of things we can't even begin to understand until mm-hmm. Jesus leaves the tomb on Easter Sunday. And you get this this great scene in the book of Acts where the disciples are walking Jesus out and he explains to them, you know, Samaria, Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, the ends of the earth. Master, tell us, when are you gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? And you can almost see Jesus going, oh, how long have I been with you guys? And you don't get it. But he can't answer them until Pentecost. Mm. And then on Pentecost Sunday, it's real clear. Every localized prophecy, every localized thing is now universalized to the whole earth. So that's how you have to read Matthew 24. It's, it's important. Jesus is using prophetic idiom. He's speaking like an Old Testament prophet. What he says shouldn't come as a surprise when you're looking for him to speak that way. And then what he says is greatly interpreted by the general and pastor epistles and Paul's letters when the, mm-hmm. the apostles are explaining what it was that Jesus had said in greater detail. But they can say it now in greater detail because our Lord has been raised from the dead and the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit's been poured out. Now those passages make greater sense. It would have made no sense before. Yeah. Yeah. That's Some great. Mic drop there. <laughs> it's great. That's one of the best uh, sort of overviews of Matthew 24 that I've heard. It's brilliant. Brilliant. Yes, I, yes, I see that hand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, should we turn to Revelation 20, Blake? Let's let's do it. We talked about this in the, the dispensational uh, episode where we were kind of... It was funny. I, like I said, I, I joked with our... our friends and said, you know, we're going to record an episode about dispensational premillennialism and try to, you know, explain <laughs> the view. And then we spend half the episode kind of ragging on the view because of these 
what I find inconsistent, but also just ultimately unbiblical, uh, uh, literalistic reading or this like line reading of scripture. I've described it like, and, and Bavink um, had the dogmatics behind me. And in, in one of his chapters, he's actually talking about Socinianism, but he talks about this idea that, that there's those who claim to be is in book two somewhere in there. Uh, he says, there's those who claim to be like biblical who insist on only using these biblical language, these biblical terms, but uh, you know, over and against those who hold an orthodox position, in this case, he's speaking about, obviously, the, the deity of the sun uh, confronting mm-hmm. uh, Socinianism. But he says the the orthodox, with their extra-biblical terminology, you know, Trinitarianism, incarnation, are proved again and again to be vindicated by the truth of Scripture because they're using language to, to describe concepts that we find in the text um, rather than just trying to line-read the text. Because the, mm-hmm. the Arians and the Socinians can line-read the text better in some cases than than uh the orthodox expositors but that doesn't make their view accurate and i think in in some ways we find a similar not the same problem and i'm not putting them on the same plane but you find a similar right. tendency to yeah to, to line read these things as a literal you know i was obviously revelation has the uh the reference to the millennium multiple times we can we can read it and get into it but um i find that an interesting dichotomy that there's this insistence on a literalistic reading can be uh, detrimental theologically in varying degrees. It just depends on like, where are you applying right. that literalistic read? Right. Well, it's, it's like a form of biblicism, right? It's, it's sure. the same sort of concept, the way that they read the Bible. Um, and I find with that sort of hyper literalism is there's not a consistent application of it throughout all scripture. They sure. just apply it to certain prophetic texts in order to, uh, get the eschatological view that they want to have, yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately. Mm. And so uh, I, I think a lot of that comes from growing up with like the Schofield Study Bible and then the late great planet Earth and things like that. They've been fed an eschatology that they are, are basically told is, is what is biblical. Sure. And sure. so they have to read their Bibles with that in, in, in light. Um, and so it forces them to be inconsistent with their hermeneutic, um, which... Whenever someone's introduced to some of these historic uh, eschatological views, all of a sudden it's like the blinders have been opened and the, the scales come off and they're like, oh, this all makes way more sense and it's yeah, way less yeah. complicated. <laughs> well, part of the problem that we have as millennial folk that I, I'm, you know, the issue I face is, is twofold. One is, if you grew up in that evangelical world, it certainly was true a generation ago, maybe even, you know, it was when I grew up. The foils were Protestant liberalism in, in the mainline mm-hmm. Protestant churches who had given up on the virgin birth, had given up on any kind of biblical authority a long time Whew. ago. Yeah. And so they they didn't take the Bible literally. So obviously you can't go there. And is that what Amil people are doing? And the other great foil is Roman Catholicism. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there's a nativistic anti-Roman bias in much of American evangelicalism. Look, I'm no fan of Rome. I think the papacy is you know, seat of Antichrist for Pete's sake at, at times. But um, the, the default to say, if Rome holds that view, therefore it can't be right, is, you know, a very, a very short-sighted step because Rome's sure. view of millennialism is not the same as a Reformed covenantal view of millennialism. Yeah. For them, <laughs> the, the institutions of the church are, are what dominate the world. And for me, it's the, the assembly of the believers to appear the gospel. So we, we, our conceptions are radically different. So 
we're up against mm-hmm. some bad, bad PR to begin with. The other thing is the prophecy pundits have made the book of Revelation to some weird esoteric thing that only mm-hmm. a prophecy expert can figure out. Yeah. When in fact, it is easily the most Christ-centered book in the New Testament. Oh, yeah. I enjoyed preaching through Revelation more than any book except for the letters of Paul. I'm a Paul guy. And I enjoyed it because the application for every week's preparation is so simple. Jesus mm-hmm. does something really remarkable. It's really easy to find it. <laughs> um, mm. And it's a shame that all the prophetic weirdness has taken the book of Revelation kind of out of the canon practically for many Christians. Yeah. And one of the things that I think guys like Dennis Johnson and Greg Beale and others have done is they've put William Hendrickson, you know, the first book Baker books ever published was uh, More Than Conquerors. Mm-hmm. So those guys have put Revelation back in the canon for a lot of people. And mm-hmm. once you start to read the book again, it becomes pretty clear that, look, this is not like First Chronicles. You know, this is not historical narrative and can't be read like that. This is a genre I'm not really used to. We don't have anything like this in modern English. Sure. And you kind of get a sense of, of what's going on, that numbers in the book of Revelation are always used symbolically, but they come from the Old Testament. Mm. Um, the, the thought world of John and the images in Revelation are all drawn from the Old Testament. So it's a it's a, a divinely given commentary on all those themes that haven't been fully tied up before the consummation. A couple of quick examples. And if you lived in Palestine or Asia Minor, uh, end of the first century, and you went to bed at night, you rolled out your, your mat, one of the things you probably did in most places is take the thing out for scorpions because, you know, scorpion mm-hmm. stings pretty nasty spiders. So why would John appeal to scorpions with stinging tails, you know? It's because there's an image in daily life that mm-hmm. whatever these demonic things are going to do, it's like a scorpion bite, but it's worse. So the analogy isn't to some sort of nerve gas in a helicopter for Pete's sake. <laughs> so you've got Hal Lindsey going on about how a locust looks like a Bell UNB helicopter. And so... yeah. And so what these pundits are saying is, look, the book of Revelation is trying to describe a future technology. John has this vision of the future. He doesn't know what he's seeing, but whatever that flying thing is, it looks like a locust. <laughs> and anybody, yeah. anybody who lived in the ancient world knows the most destructive thing could ever happen to you and your community was a plague of locusts. Because mm-hmm. if the locusts came, they ate everything, and you were dead, and all your animals were dead. Um, Horrible disaster brought about by the locust place. There was one in, in Algeria in, what, in the early 1900s that killed half a million people. So that's more than died in America from COVID. So, I mean, these things are nasty, and the ancient world was terrified. That's where the images come from. The Old Testament, locusts. What book of the Old Testament talks about locusts? How about Joel? You know, mm-hmm. it just goes on and on. Mm-hmm. And when you get to Revelation chapter 20, you know, you've got a scene there where the thrones are. And prior to throughout the book of Revelation, the thrones are always in heaven, unless this be one place where the thrones are on the earth. You have John speaking of, of, of using a term repeatedly early in Revelation, I saw, I saw, I saw. Mm-hmm. And every time he introduces a new vision, it's because he's seeing something new. And so Dennis Johnson, I'm going to steal this from him because he's it's a brilliant illustration. You'll never forget once you hear it. Um, if you guys are NFL football fans, you, you notice, you know, when the NFL game's on, the director, whoever's in the truck, you know, watching the, all the camera streams can go to camera to camera to camera. It's the same game, but every camera sees things from different angles. 
So these visions in the book of Revelation, there's seven primary visions. The first one, of course, is the seven churches, and then on and on. The last one being final judgment begins at Revelation chapter 20, so seven, the final vision. So all of these things occur at the same time. It's just like a different camera angle in the same event. So if you're watching a football game, you have a camera that, that looks down the line of scrimmage. You have one that watches the defensive backfield. You have isolation cameras that watch the running backs, the wide receivers, and so on. Um, the book of Revelation is like that. Each of these visions is looking at mm. the same course of history from Christ's first coming, his resurrection, his ascension, until his second coming from different angles. And the, the, the scenes are sequential in Revelation. And the tendency is that the last ones talk more about the scenes from the end of that period. And once you start to see Revelation like that, it's not weird anymore. It's a book about Jesus mm. and the stuff Jesus does to ensure that we win in the end. And it's a book of comfort and hope. It's not weird esoteric, but sadly, it's become that for so many. Yeah. So I don't know if that gets to your Revelation 20 question, but it, 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 it's hard to answer questions about particular passages in Revelation apart from the whole. The example Mike Horton used regularly in the White Horse is really helpful is the box top and then the puzzle pieces. So if you can take the pieces out and fit two of them together, you can spend all your time explaining how these two pieces fit. This one's got a notch. This one doesn't. This one's this way. This one has part black, part blue. And that's all you see until somebody holds up the box top and you're trying to figure out where those two pieces fit. So the book of Revelation is a, is a box top kind of book. Mm. And it drives scientists and engineers and accountants nuts <laughs> because it's not technical mm. but there's a there's a reason why max mclean reading the book of revelation out loud is I, every time i hear it i pick up stuff that i don't get from reading it it's mm. a big picture thematic book uh sweeping images uh not precise on there's some detail but that's not the point it, it, you you're trying to untangle the 144,000 apart from the fact that it's you know, 12 types, 12, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. There's a bunch of zeros on the end to show how many there are. You try and go beyond that, you miss all point. And mm. so there's a, there's a reason why that book is hard for, for people who are looking for historical narrative to make sense of it. Oh, that's yeah. good. Brilliant. I'm looking at the time and I think we might want to wrap this and jump into the rest like do the rest of the conversation in in our patreon but before that uh just for you kim as, as a pastor of 25 years what's the pastoral application like yeah this is all you know we, we can talk about systematic theology in the classroom and we can talk about you know in, interpretive lens and all these things and i know they they apply but how does you, you alluded to this earlier that preaching revelation was a great joy what's the the big picture uh, pastoral application on Sunday when you're preaching through a passage about uh, the end times or um, speaking about amillennialism, you know, I, I assume mm -hmm. it's not necessarily like a Sunday school kind of situation uh, from the pulpit, but how does this affect the, the pastoral role and in, in ministry and preaching? Um, there's, there's kind of a big question somewhere in there, but I think yeah, you get yeah. the gist of what I'm asking. In, in many ways, on the, for the individual who's struggling with sin, the bruised reed, the smoldering wick, eschatology offers them uh, a savior who's going to come and receive them as they are in Christ, not just as I am, but uh, justified with an imputed righteousness and, and all sin forgiven. 
uh, I'll be received in Christ. Mm. So uh, if you're getting the gospel prior to eschatology, then eschatology becomes hopeful and not fearful. Mm. So the poor smoldering uh, wick, the bruised reed, looking for deliverance from their struggles is mm-hmm. in pretty good shape. The smoldering wick, bruised reed, who's terrified that Christ is going to come back and catch him doing something they're not supposed to be doing, eschatology is terrible. <laughs> so you've got to tie eschatology <laughs> to the gospel. It has mm-hmm. to be the, the yeah. outcome of the gospel. For those folks going through really difficult times, it's really helpful to do what Paul talks about. And he's telling Timothy, you know, you run the race to win, so you you kind of train ahead and look over the horizon and see the finish line. You know, you got a long ways to go, and it's going to be tough getting there. But if you can see it, you can kind of, you know, this is the finish line for people. This is yeah. to show them that, um, look, Christ wins in the end. You're going to be with him. His promises are going to be fulfilled, and you can know that his promises will be fulfilled because every promise he's made so far has been fulfilled. Mm. Amen. So this is a, a continuation of that. It also, in a big picture, deals with you know the the injustice. Um, yes, oh, big time. Yeah, that when we look at what goes on in the world, how terrible it is. Christians should not be surprised that non-Christians behave like non-Christians. Yeah, yeah. we should expect it. And in the Book of Revelation, you see, there's a there's a, a the subtext is Christ versus the Antichrist, and one of the great themes of our redemptive history is the the two warriors, Christ defeating, of course, the Antichrist in the end, mm-hmm. uh, who's the meaning of Satan. So this shows you that you know Babylon the Great is really good at persecuting God's people and generating mm-hmm. wealth and power for, for those outside of Christ. But at the end of the day, its own builders tear it down. <laughs> you know, they mm-hmm. set it on fire. Mm-hmm. And then they weep and they moan. I mean, the city of man, <laughs> the story of the city of man doesn't end well for the city of man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But for, for the Christian, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. It ends very well for us. Mm. So there's a lot of comfort here for, for folks. There's a lot of answers here to those yeah. nasty apologetics questions about it isn't fair, it isn't right. No, it's not. It's a sure. fallen world. It's totally screwed up. But because God's kept all his promises in the past, I really believe he's going to keep all of them in the future. And Babylon the Great loses. Amen. That's a great it. note to end the main show. Uh, thank you again, Dr. Riddlebarger for spending time with us. Folks, Glad to do it. head over yeah. to to slash giveaway by Friday for a chance to win your copy of a case for amillennialism provided for us kindly by Baker books. Um, actually Dr. Yes. Riddlebarger, what other books, if people are interested in eschatology, uh, aside from picking up a copy of your book, what else should people read if they want to, uh, dive into this topic? Great question. Um, I would tackle post haste, uh, Dennis Johnson's Triumph of the Lamb, which is a great introduction to the book of Revelation. Uh, Dr. Johnson's done a great service of that. Um, I think if you're a dispensationalist and you want to look at the, the nitty-gritty of how to refute it from the inside out, Sam Storm's uh, Kingdom mm-hmm. uh, book is really yeah. good. He was at Dallas, you know, kind of going through the same thing. Um, I need to pick a couple of the conclusions there, but by and large, it's a really solid book for somebody who is a dispensationalist who's starting to have questions about it. Um, and the, the the benchmark still is Hookham's Bible in the future, which deals with the whole range of eschatology, including the intermediate state and all the rest of the stuff. So mm, it's a broader great. book than Barnum and Lane. Yeah. They're all great. That's wonderful. Oh, that's awesome. Justin, what are we doing next week just as we wrap yes. up here? Yeah, we're going to be jumping into uh, the other uh, <laughs> millennial view, post-millennialism 
Uh, but we are going to be getting an overview from uh, somebody who is uh, theonomic and reconstructionist leaning, um, which would be an interesting and fun comparison. But Luke from Apologia Radio, Apologia Studios, Luke Pearson will be joining us uh, to talk about that um, and perhaps compare and contrast some of the uh, historic versus um, theonomic <laughs> uh, post-millennial uh, views. And then we're going to be sipping, uh, which I'm very excited about, Del Moore Cigar Malt. Uh, that is going to be uh, that's going to be a good one, I, I hope. Um, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. You are hopeful um, as the, the post-millennials <laughs> on the show. But but thankfully, you know, the, the day that you texted me and said I'm no longer a theonomist was a very good day for me. Yes. So, yes. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. It, it was a very post-millennial day for me as well. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Um, yes. Oh, man. Awesome. Just, just a reminder to folks that uh, Distilling Theology is still a proud member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters, a network of doctrinally sound podcasts from a Reformed perspective, including Assurance of Pardon, The Bobcast, Christ in Context, Distilling Theology, Fast God Stuff, Five Points Church Planting Podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude, Reformed Brotherhood, Reformed Pilgrims, Restless, Seeker Start, Sippin' on Theology, Steady Anchor, <laughs> And the particular Baptist podcast. You can get all these shows at reformedpodcasts.com. You'll get the back catalog of all of them. Also, uh, since we have one of the the stalwarts of the White Horse Inn, go listen to White... If you're not listening to White Horse Inn, I don't know what why you're you doing. Show. Yeah, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, I, no, but in seriousness, I've been very edified uh, listening um, mm-hmm. to, hear, to hear the four core of you gentlemen go through and... And really every week is, you know, I, I, it almost sounds like a cliche, kind of like preaching on the Lord's Day, but it, it's the gospel. It's Christ week yes. after week after week, no matter what topic it is. Uh, it's interesting to always hear, um, Kim, to hear you and, and Mike Horton and, and Rod and Ken always come back to this through the, the classics and, and all this to come back to Christ. Yeah. It's, it, but that he's the center of scripture. So we shouldn't yeah. really be surprised, but it's, yeah. it's refreshing to have that. So, uh, again, a grateful, grateful to the work that has been done there. And, um, really like we wouldn't our all the us and all of our, our brother podcasts here, we wouldn't be yes. here without that kind of format, you know, renewing your oh. mind with Sproul and grace to you with MacArthur and the white horse in it's like, but, yeah, you know, y'all, y'all started this now. <laughs> now we're breaking. <laughs> we'll back the, go ahead. Good to see you guys continuing it. Yeah. Yeah. The, well, the list is getting so long. I mean, we're going to have to do a whole episode just to list off all the people in the, well, the website I'm, I'm, now. I'm a good capitalist, so the better ones will survive and the weak ones will get bought up by the beer. <laughs> Survival love it. of the fittest. love it. That's amazing. Guys, um, don't forget to uh, check us out on social media. We are, of course, on Facebook. We have a Facebook page that you can like, Facebook group that you can join. Uh, if you join us there, you can uh, participate in all kinds of ridiculous conversations, uh, memes, but also some amazing edifying conversation as well. Uh, without a doubt, the most sage stage reform Facebook group that you can join, uh, hands down. Uh, check us out on Instagram. Uh, of course, we are there. Instagram at Distilling Theology, where you can get pictures uh, and book recommendations and whiskey recommendations and have conversation with us is there as well. Um, so yeah, check us out on social media, Blake. Uh, if people want more, <laughs> uh, like, like we're about to give them more yeah. if they are where, <laughs> uh, if you join us at patreon.com slash distilling theology, you get discounts in the online store, you get extended conversations, you get episodes released early. We're recording this episode on Monday, the 29th. It won't air, I believe until, uh, 
Tuesday the 6th. So doing an early sneak preview on Patreon, plus some bonus content. A few folks have already asked some questions. we got a listener Q&A coming up. You can join us over there. Uh, we are listener-supported, and we appreciate all the people who help us make this podcast possible, uh, cover our podcasting expenses, and so on and so forth. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. Amen. Thanks for listening to this fun conversation we had with Dr. Kim Riddlebarger. We had a blast. The conversation went on for quite a bit longer. We answered some listener questions, talked about two kingdom theology. We got into some pastoral uh, present application. So here's a sneak preview from that full-length conversation, which is available exclusively at patreon.com slash distillingtheology. Conrad listening, he says, for a congregation that has little to no understanding of eschatology, where and how might they begin to be taught or how might you begin to teach a congregation that really is uneducated in the matter at all? I am committed to expositional preaching. Mm. I think top, topical yes. preaching has, has so lowered the bar in terms of biblical yes. knowledge yes. that that question comes Amen. up. If you're preaching through books of the Bible regularly, the text answers that question for you because so mm-hmm. many biblical texts talk about the end times and you introduce them to people in the context of a particular book of the Bible. Mm-hmm. The other good thing about the other good thing about um, expositional preaching is I can't preach in eschatology every Sunday. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's right. So I, I encourage ministers to, to find a book and preach through it. And and Dr. Rosemont's got this great illustration. He speaks about people using the Bible uh, in such a such a light, slipshod way that it's like a mosquito landing on a pond of water. They're just gonna let it floats there, and when it leaves, the water is even ripple. You know, that's that's kind of the way the Bible is used in a whole lot of churches. Mm-hmm. And make people bring their Bible to church and open it up and preach from the text. I mm-hmm. guarantee you, the stuff in the Bible in the biblical text is far more interesting than the movies you've seen or the books you've read. Far more. Amen. That's it. That's an excellent, excellent answer. And. uh that applies to so much more than just eschatology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.